Second century, we're now coming up on the end of the second century, and uh, we've just finished up dealing with heresies. Heresies round one. Um, it's been mostly the cults, uh, very cult style uh, heresies that are being led here in the second century. And uh, we're pretty much wrapped up with round one now, so today we're not going to really get into that. But as I mentioned earlier, um, all the church is done with round one with the heresies. The heresy of Montanism, they do get a little bit of a grudge match later on. So, as I said, make a mental bookmark, try to remember what we learned about Montanism, because we're going to circle back around that, uh, to that a little bit later, but very soon, I think, um, in this course. So, uh, very important. What we're going to do today is we're actually going to take a little bit of an excursion, and we're going to examine uh, an event, a controversy that occurred in the church kind of right toward the end of the second century. And the reason I think I call it an excursion is because if you were to, say, read maybe a book on church history or listen to a podcast, it's entirely possible that this event may not even receive a mention. Or if they do mention it, they kind of might mention it and then move on quickly. And that's there's a reason for that. It's not a really big deal in, in, in the grand scheme of things. Um, at that time, there were so many controversies, so many dramatic uh, issues and, and fights going on. There were things that the church was still trying to iron out, the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. Um, there were books of the New Testament that the church, uh, some, some a minority in the church was still challenging, the book of Revelation, for example. Um, there was also uh, big political changes that affected the church in various ways. And so, kind of in the backdrop of all that, and all big persecutions still going on in the second and into the third century, we're going to see. Um, it, against that backdrop, this little controversy that occurred toward the end of the second century admittedly appears of lesser significance. It doesn't seem to hold a lot of weight. But the reason that I want to take kind of an excursion and learn about it is because, as insignificant as it is, I think it's, um, well, it's, it's kind of insignificant when you take it in isolation, but it's nonetheless helpful because it, if you kind of sort of place a magnifying glass on a bigger issue in the early church that I think is very significant, and I think it's really helpful if we could maybe learn some lessons from that. And this is, again, part of a bigger picture that I'm trying to help us maybe see and learn about over the course of multiple lessons. So as I said, remember the Montanists today. Try to remember this one as well. This is a short little controversy that we deal with. And later on, we're going to circle back and um, hopefully kind of wrap it up with a real quick conclusion. Um, so what's the controversy, though, uh, that we're going to look at today? Uh, well, what it was was a dispute that occurred in the second century uh, between the second century churches over how to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, Easter. So, just for fun, I've titled today's lesson the Easter Rebellion. So, I'm a little bit Irish, so that's where I get that from. All right, so let's get into the Easter Rebellion here. What, it, what, it, what was it about? Um, first of all, just some thoughts about Easter, of course. Um, we all know Easter is uh, celebrated all over the world. Christians from 
Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox backgrounds all celebrate it and have celebrated it. Uh, we celebrate it right around the same time as the Jewish Passover. Uh, the reality is there is some pretty good evidence that this tradition of ours goes all the way back, not just to the second century, but even to the apostles themselves. Um, there are some sources that we have in the second century who actually claim that the apostles uh, kind of had a celebration of it. And um, I'm not going to stand here and say it's indisputable. I would just say that based on those witnesses, it's probably more likely than not that the apostles did have some way of celebrating Easter. Um, and actually, I don't really find that, you know, all that surprising. Um, if you think about it, uh, the apostles, Peter, James, John, Paul, and all the others, they were all Jews. And that would mean that as they're growing up, uh, they would be keeping the Jewish Passover. That would be a, a major part of their lives. Uh, the Jewish Passover, of course, is the biggest festival in the Jewish calendar. And that would have had an impression on them. And then, of course, when they're adults, the Messiah comes. He's the one Passover is all about. They become his disciples. He has his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And then he goes to the Father. And when he goes to the Father, he commissions the apostles to carry the gospel to the rest of the world. Now, do you think that when the apostles, they're now on the other side of the resurrection, Christ has come, and they have the gospel to go preach to the world, do you think at this point they just suddenly stop keeping the Passover? I would think it's a little bit unlikely. Um, the, fact, the fact that they were all Jews seems to me a little bit unlikely. Maybe Paul, just maybe, since he was specifically the apostle to the Gentiles, but I think more than likely, most of them continued to keep it. But they probably kept it in a little bit of a new light. They kept it in light of the fact that now the Passover lamb has come, uh, he died, he came back to life, and so now the Passover probably does take on a little bit, for, for the apostles, takes on a little bit of uh, the flavor of a resurrection celebration. So that, that, to me, would make complete sense. Now that's, I'll admit that is a lot of conjecture there. I'm not going to you know, preach that as that's what happened necessarily. But it's definitely imaginable. So it shouldn't be something that takes us by surprise if, in fact, it is what they did. Uh, but whether or not the apostles actually kept uh, Easter, so to speak, we do know that by the end of the second century, uh, really all the churches of the Roman Empire were celebrating it and had been celebrating it for some time. Um, while they did that, though, there, as we get to the end of the, of, the, of the second century, there was a problem. And the problem was that there were some, at least one major difference in how they observed it. And basically, you could take that major difference, and with it, you can divide the churches of the world at this time into two major camps. So the first camp. The first camp was the churches of Europe. That's this part all right here. North Africa. And then Palestine, so East or uh, Western Asia, right here. This whole geographic area of churches, they had a way of celebrating it that went more or less like this. Prior to the what they called the Paschal Festival, which was their Easter celebration, they would begin a period of fasting, and that fasting varied from one person to another, from one church to another, in terms of the length and the method that they fasted. But what was key for them, apparently, was that they all ended the fast 
on whichever Sunday fell during the Jewish Passover. So they'd start this fasting, and then Passover week would come, and they'd decide this Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. That's when we end the fast and we celebrate. Sound a little bit familiar? So that's Camp 1. Now, Camp 2 is this section right here, Asia Minor. And that whole little geographic area of churches, basically what they did is, well, it was a little bit the same. The first thing, and first of all, they, they also fasted. They had their time of fasting. And again, it seemed to vary perhaps a little bit from, from one congregation to the next. But the real key was that they disagreed on which day to end the fast. Okay? So the Jewish Passover, if you're familiar with, with Jewish festivals at all, basically what happens is they have the month of Nisan. It's a Jewish month in the Jewish calendar. And on the 15th day of Nisan, Passover begins. It begins on the 15th, and then it goes for about a week. According to the Gospels, well, back up a little bit. So the 15th is when it begins. The day before the 15th, the 14th of the sun is what the Jews call preparation day. And that's the day where they take all the leaven that's in the home and they clear it out, they clean it out to get ready for the Passover. Okay? Now, according to the Gospels, Jesus Christ was crucified on preparation day. That's the 14th day of the sun. So, while... All of the churches, except for Asia Minor, are fasting, and then they stop their fast on Sunday. Asia Minor churches all fast until the 14th day of the sun, and they stop the fast strictly on the 14th day of the sun every single year, regardless of whether that day is a Sunday or any other day of the week. Okay? Sound like a bunch of heretics to you? Well, that's actually exactly what the Bishop of Rome said about them. So what, I'm sorry, the camp two started when and ended when? I don't know when they started. Okay, okay. okay. But the, the key was when they ended. Okay, okay. And again, it seems like it may have varied as far as when they started, and that wasn't the plan. And camp one ended? Sunday of the Passover. Sunday of the Passover. So they Passover. would. So, oh, you don't, you don't know when they started, but it would be kind of like uh, 16 or 17 Nissan, right? Probably. Something like that. Got it, got it. Whatever. It seems like they exchanged letters. Got well, it. doesn't think they said that. They exchanged letters. Got it. To make sure that they knew which got day, of yeah. uh, which Sunday are we doing this, and they yeah. all kind of would stop then. Yeah. And Camp 2 ended 22. Two, the Asian, Asian, what do yeah. you call them, the Asian churches? Yeah. Asian minor? Yeah. The Asian churches always ended on the Jewish 14th day oh, 14th of the So got it. they would actually end early, usually, got it. Got it. Okay. Um, before the Passover began. And so there was a big fight about this. And again, uh, Bishop of Rome says these guys are heretics. Bishop of Rome is a guy named uh, Victor at this point. And uh, apparently with this kind of disagreement going on, all around the Roman Empire in these areas, there had been these meetings, church conferences, so to speak, where the churches were trying to formulate a decree of some sort where they could compel the, all, all the churches everywhere to end the fast on Sunday. So did on those Asian churches, 
Is that where most of the Orthodox came from? Eastern Orthodox? Yeah. yeah. Most Eastern Orthodox, they trace their roots back to that area. That's good. But this, at this point, I don't think, you could probably put this as one of the small differences that divided East and West, but that's a fact. As we get along further in history, the church begins to divide more and more theologically, culturally, and in other ways, East and West. This would have been one of the small differences, but a difference nonetheless. Um, so they had all these meetings, and they tried to uh, they tried to make all the churches you know, sort of conform to ending the fast on Sunday. But the reality was that the Asian churches simply weren't having it. They were strictly we're ending this on the 14th, and they actually had a guy. Uh, they had a bunch of guys, but one one particular champion of this position for them, and his name was. I might be mispronouncing this, but I call him Polycrates. It's P-O-L-Y-C-R-A-T-E-S. Uh, don't have to remember his name necessarily, but he's the champion in this for them, I guess, in this uh, in this particular story. He argued this that the the fourteenth keeping the fourteenth of Nisan was a tradition that the Asian churches had received from their fathers, and they could trace the tradition all the way back through really illustrious names like. Polycarp, for example, we've met him already, and they could trace it back through him all the way to the Apostle John himself, according to Polycrates, and also that he claimed that the Apostle Philip also did this, they kept the 14th as the end of the fast. And so Poly Polycrates, he makes this argument, he writes a long letter to Victor, making this long argument, and at the end of his letter, letter he ends with a big old flourish, and he, he, he proclaims, we must obey God rather than men. Victor didn't like that very much at all. Um, he took that kind of as an affront. So he reacts, really overreacts, and he, he, he basically tries to get a wholesale excommunication for all the churches of Asia Minor. He writes letters to all the other churches in Europe and North Africa and so on. And he says, those guys, they're out. They are not Orthodox, no more fellowship with them. Now up to, uh, I think up to this time in our, in, in kind of going through this church history course, we've really, we've criticized a lot of people. We've, we've criticized Roman emperors, um, people who persecuted the church. We've criticized apostates and, and heretics, um, true heretics, not more the only ill. Uh, but really, today, in this little excursion, at this juncture, it's really the church that deserves the most criticism. Uh, we know, of course, that this scenario is repeated many times throughout history, these kinds of little uh, fights and so forth. But um, there's some lessons, I think, for, for us as a church to take away from this today. So for now, we just continue with the story. Uh, fortunately, after well, when Bishop Victor wanted to excommunicate everybody, uh, the other churches kind of said, wait, hold on a minute, let's, let's step on the brakes for just a minute here. There were cooler and, and more mature heads in the other churches, and quite frankly, most of them, maybe all of them, just didn't like the idea of excommunicating you know, this entire province of the Roman Empire uh, from fellowship. And one of those cooler heads uh, in fact, one who was really highly respected and influential was none other than Irenaeus. So we've met him as well before. Irenaeus, uh, if you remember him, he's the Gnostic buster. He's the guy who wrote against heresies, uh, basically researched all the heresies and 
picked them apart, showed why they were, uh, what they believed and, and why they were wrong. He was really, really respected and really influential. And um, he kind of took some leadership in this uh, controversy here. He, he's kind of, you can imagine Irenaeus thinking, he's saying, well, you're calling these guys heretics, but I'm the heretic expert here, and I would say they don't really qualify. So what, what Irenaeus does is he writes a letter to Bishop Victor, and in that, in that letter, he urges him to seek peace and reconciliation, find a peaceful resolution to what's going on. Let me just read you an ex excerpt from Irenaeus' letter. He says this. He says, he's talking about the festival. Remember, that's what the fight is all about. And he says, the dispute is not only about the day, that's the day we end the, the fast, but also about the practice of the fast. Some think that they ought to fast for one day, others for two. Some count 40, 40 day-night hours in their quote-unquote day. In other words, he's saying, you know, the day you end the fast is not the only difference we have. We have a lot of differences from one place to another, from one person to another, on how we fast and how long we fast. So it's not just about the day. And he goes on, he says, such variation in observance did not begin in our own day, but much earlier in the time of our predecessors who seemed to have disregarded accuracy for simplicity in establishing future practice. Nevertheless, they all lived in peace with each other, as do we, and the disagreement in the fast affirms our agreement in the faith. So he's basically saying this isn't something we should separate from. And he's urging Victor to make peace. Uh, Irenaeus's leadership prevailed in this controversy. Most of the other churches liked uh, his influence and what he was saying. And uh, most of the bishops agreed with him. We know Victor backed down. And uh, in the end, the Western, African, Palestinian churches all agreed to be at peace with the Asian churches uh, and not require the Asians to change their custom as, as far as how they celebrated Easter. And so for a time, uh, this peace in the church was preserved, although it was threatened uh, fairly, fairly severely at that point. Any questions up to this point? How come those uh, practices have been carried out in our days? Um, will be you know, one person from now for later. Because uh, uh, I see some churches where they, where they start the year with uh, 40 days fasting, uh, January 1st. Yeah. yeah. And then from there, they want to preach. Every year, almost the preaching of the word is the same. Same, same uh, reading, same preaching. It's like a, it's a, it's like a recipe. Yeah. No? Uh, it, it sounds to me like the, there is some heritage of the those practices oh, until now. This, this, pre, this is the predecessor to much of what we see now in the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church, and also to some extent the Protestant Church. Yeah, I have seen it in the Catholic, yeah. but also in the Protestant churches. Right. That, that, you know, it's, uh, you know what the pastor is going to preach next year, because he did it last year, last year, and last previous year. So same preaching never changes, you know. Pretty young job, it's the first year as an artist. <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah. Bibles. Let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter fourteen. What? How do the churches? I know one lady who used to go to McLean, and she thinks, oh, the church is failing to, to preserve Lent. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know. And. Uh, yeah. That's what, what our lesson is about today. Yeah. What? What? What churches today? Does any Protestant churches celebrate Lent? Not to my knowledge. I don't know if the Anglicans, they're not Protestant technically, but I'm not sure if the Anglicans have any celebrations for that or not. Um, that, yeah, that's a, that's a and, when they, and I know there were different ways that people did, like, you know, eat meat for 40 days, you have to eat fish or something. But, I mean, it'd be pretty hard to then eat anything for 40 days. Yeah, no, almost no one does that. What? Almost no one does that. No, yeah, they usually, I think only yeah. Jesus could do that. It's a process of, of it's, yeah. Maybe multiple days throughout that period, or like you said, not even. I think if you fast for 40 days, you're in the graveyard. <laughs> Romans uh, 14, uh, let's look at verses 1 through 6 here, real quick. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Church of the Romans. He says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge a man's, judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another person esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat, and gives God thanks. There's something that I think really disturbs me about this fight, and it's related to what we're talking about, a lot of questions that you guys are bringing up, too. Um, it's not just the fact that the churches were fighting in the second century. I mean, that's that in itself is concerning, of course. But it's really, for me, I think it's also the fact of what they are fighting about. It's a technical dispute over when and how to observe a religious festival, a religious day. And this disturbs me because it's, it's a subject that, I, that, the, that the apostles already dealt with very plainly. Uh, they dealt with it at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. If you guys, I think most of you were probably here when, when George took us through Acts. If you want to if you remember, if you want to review what the Jerusalem Council was all about, it's about this very issue. Um, and by the way, when Polycrates says, we must obey God and not man, he's quoting Acts 5. And that means Polycrates has Acts. He has the book of Acts. Um, Paul also dealt with this issue in a lot of his letters. He dealt with it especially in the book of the Galatians. Um, we're starting today, I think. Is that right? and then the letter to the Colossians, and he deals with it right here in his letter to the Romans. The second century churches ought to know this doctrine. They ought to be clear on this. Uh, the reality is that by the end of the second century, we have really good, I would say overwhelming evidence that Paul's letters were available to virtually all the major churches of the world. Uh, and for the most part, they were also all accepted as scripture. There were some books that were being challenged by a minority of people, namely Revelation, uh, the book of Hebrews, um, 
couple of other books of John, they were being challenged by a minority. It was a minority, but they were being challenged nonetheless. But as far as Paul's letters went, the church is like, oh yeah, we know these are his letters. We've preserved these. We've been copying them. And we know that they're scripture. I can guarantee you that Victor, the bishop of Rome, had a copy of Romans that he could read, that he should have known about. Uh, what do the scriptures actually tell them? What does Paul say in his letters? He says, according to Romans 14 right here, he says that with respect to food and drink and so-called holy days, it's really a matter of personal freedom, whether you keep it or whether you don't keep it. Romans 14.6 says, he's, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the, the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. It's a matter of freedom. And so the church, the church with all of her authority, she, she has been given authority, but she is not authorized to either prescribe or proscribe holy days that everybody has to follow. It's not something the church is supposed to do. I think that Irenaeus probably understands this to some extent. We only have excerpts of his letters. We don't have all that he wrote and said. But based on what we have, if we, as we read his letter, we can see he argues that, that Christians everywhere have differences in how they fast. And yet, despite those differences, they share a unity in the faith. And so to me, it does seem like Irenaeus kind of understands this a little better than many of his contemporaries. And as a result of that, I think he achieved, achieved peace for the church at that time. Now, despite all of that, the, the end of the story is still a little bit bittersweet. Um, the other bishops of the churches, they agreed with Irenaeus uh, in practice to be at peace with the churches of Asia, but they still did so with a little bit of a reservation. Uh, for them, Victor, of course, was too extreme. Uh, it, it was way too far to go to just you know excommunicate these guys. But a lot of the churches still felt that the Asian churches technically were still in error and going to suffer for it. There were um, some Palestinian churches over here, kind of this area, Caesarea is going to be over here on the coast. Uh, those churches had a practice of, you know, as, as you approach the Apostle Festival, they'd start exchanging letters between themselves and also with the, the churches in Alexandria. Uh, as far as what Sunday to end the fast, and um, they, uh, we have a letter from them kind of following up on this issue, and they said this. One of their bishops wrote this he, after, in, in, in respect to the, the whole Paschal controversy. He said, try to send copies of our letter to every diocese. And here he's alluding to the Asian churches particularly, I think. He says, do this so that we may not shirk our responsibility to those who easily deceive their own souls. So in other words, what he's saying is those sad, deluded brothers and sisters in Asia who keep this, the 14th instead of Sunday, they may be Christians, sure, but they are in gray error. So you see, it's still a really big deal for him. And he thinks that people, Christian brothers and sisters, are going to suffer for not keeping this holy day. But what, what's the grave error in this situation? Really, if you think about it, most false religions uh, of the world, they, they have, well, pretty much all of them have their holy days. Uh, and many also have dietary laws. They have rules for fasting. 
the fact is, the truth of the matter is that none of these things, holy days or fasting or um, dietary rules, can commend us to God or improve our standing with Him in any way. In fact, as religious humans, we have a, a typical nature that makes us almost want to run zealously after these sorts of things while we turn away from God. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Mark uh, 7. 7, 6, and 7, Jesus says about the Pharisees, he quotes Isaiah, and he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's exactly what this Paschal Festival thing is all about. It's not a bad custom. It's not a bad tradition to keep Easter. It's not a bad custom to end on the 14th or on Sunday. But... They're turning it into a doctrine. It's just a commandment of men. The Jews themselves, they were, they were God's chosen people. They had God's divine law and prophets, and yet they devolved into road tradition that could not save them. The fact is the gospel of Christ frees people from that tradition. It frees us so that we can serve God in true righteousness. Um, the church's relevance, we talked a lot about the relevance of the church the church's relevance in the world is founded in her preaching that gospel of freedom. It's not founded in these sorts of traditions. So for me, the saddest thing about the, the possible controversy, the Easter rebellion, as I call it, is that here you have only a, a century after the apostles, we're finding at this point the churches are already descending into the very same kind of error, the very same kind of, in nature, the very same kind of traditionalism that Judaism had. They were already beginning to teach human traditions as though they were commandments. It took one, one thoughtful mind, Irenaeus, who stood up and said, hey, wait a minute, let's, let's not make this a commandment here. But for the most part, it seems the majority of them thought, yeah, this is, you gotta get this one technically correct. And the reality is that way of thinking is a, is a fatal error. For the Jews, that error ultimately led them, it was a key component that led them to reject the Messiah himself. And for the early church, I believe and I want to argue that the same error, error is a component that ultimately erodes the church's witness for the gospel. It erodes the church's uh, defense and preservation of the gospel. You'll see that in the course of history. And so this Easter rebellion, although it's not a real big uh, event in church history and by most standards, it is still, I think, very representative of something that's going on. And I think the consequences, as we get go further along in our study of church history, the consequences are going to be shown to be pretty severe.